Let me have you open your Bibles with me to Matthew chapter 25, if you would. We're continuing to work through the Olivet Discourse. This is the last long teaching section of Jesus in Matthew's Gospel, and it is his long answer to a very particular question. The disciples see him teach and heal. They have seen him condemn those people who have rejected him. Uh, they have heard him say that the temple is coming down, and they've heard him say that he is coming, and a kingdom is coming with him that is greater and more glorious than they could ever even imagine. And so given all of that information that seems to pull at itself a lot of times, they say, tell us, Lord, when will these things be? And what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? And starting in Matthew 24, verse 4, Jesus launches into this long answer that answers that question. And he dealt first with the what it looks like, the signs. And a couple of weeks ago, we saw the turn, and he began talking about when. And broadly, although it might frustrate us, and it might have even frustrated the disciples, the answer to when is the signs will be clear, but his coming is unknown and unexpected. You do not know the day or the hour, and that is not a reason to be sullen, uh, to be sad, to be dismayed. It is a reason not only for hope, because we know that he's coming, but it's a call to action. That has been the theme of the last couple of weeks, and it will be the theme of this week and certainly next week. Because you do not know when the Son of Man is coming, you are called to be prepared. And we saw that in the two illustrations that we went through last week. If the master of the house knew when the thief was going to come, he would have been up and he would have been ready so that the thief doesn't break in and steal. We saw that picture again of the wise and the foolish servants. The wise servant and the foolish servant both given work to do, and the master of both of them leaves, but only one is rewarded when he returns because the wise servant was obedient, not knowing when the master would come back. The foolish servant saw that delay as an opportunity to feed his own lust, to do evil. And when the master returns, he deals rightly with both kinds of servants. To the wise servant, there's blessing, there's reward. To the foolish servant, there's judgment that comes. And as we move into chapter 25 today, we're going to look in the next parable that Jesus gives. And this one is another picture of what the kingdom is like. This time, a picture of preparation. So if you're not there already, find your way to Matthew chapter 25, and I'm going to begin reading in verse 1. This is what Jesus says, Then the kingdom of heaven will be like ten virgins who took their lamps and went to meet the bridegroom. Five of them were foolish, and five were wise. For when the foolish took their lamps, they took no oil with them, but the wise took flasks of oil with their lamps. As the bridegroom was delayed, they all became drowsy and slept. But at midnight there was a cry, Here is the bridegroom, come out to meet him. And then all those virgins rose and trimmed their lamps. And the foolish said to the wise, Give us some of your oil, for our lamps are going out. But the wise answered, saying, Since there will not be enough for us and for you, go rather to the dealers and buy for yourselves. And while they were going to buy, the bridegroom came. And those who were ready went in with him to the marriage feast. And the door was shut. Afterward the other virgins came also, saying, Lord, Lord, open to us. But he answered, truly, I say to you, I do not know you. Watch, therefore, for you know neither the day nor the hour. Let's pray. Lord, although we would rather not see it, we confess that we are a rather simple people. Our understanding might go a long way in certain fields, certain aspects. But Lord, when it comes to the things of eternity, when it comes to things of you, we're so often blind, misunderstanding, slow, slow to speak, slow to, slow to hear, slow to see. Oh, Lord, I pray that you would once again open our eyes. 
Open our eyes, as the psalmist writes, so that we might behold wonderful things from your word. Remind us uh, that we are dependent on you to see, to understand, and even to do in response. So, Lord, thank you for the gracious gift that your word is. Thank you for the spirit that not only brings us understanding, but then gives us the ability to obey. And pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. If we were to say, be prepared, many things might come to mind. For those of us that have been around for a little while, be prepared. That is the Boy Scout motto. Simple, effective, memorable. Uh, to some people, when you say be prepared, uh, they say, no problem, I am a prepper, which is an actual thing. You know, you're preparing for not just natural disasters, but the Armageddon that is to come. And if you are so inclined, you could send money to people like uh, televangelist Jim Baker, who for the small price of $165 will send you a bucket with uh, 60 freeze-dried meals in there for you so that you can ride out the terrible times that are coming. They're sold out now. You don't have to look. Um, and don't do that anyway. There's better ways to prepare. Uh, if you want to be prepared, have a fire escape plan from your house. Have an earthquake plan for your house. These are good ways to be prepared. Over the last two weeks, we've been reminded that schools have to prepare for potentially tragic acts of violence that happen on campus. Why do we prepare? Why is it that we make the emergency plans? Why is it that schools have to have drills for those types of things? The fact is that when the serious thing happens, it rarely comes with warning. We prepare so that when the event arrives, we're ready. And as serious as all of those earthly things are, as necessary as preparation is for all of those things, what Jesus is reminding us here is that there is an event of eternal significance that is coming that you must be prepared for. The sun is coming back. Although there's going to be a delay, although the world looks like it is spinning out of control, although Satan and all of our adversaries rage against that fact, the sun is going to return. And he's going to come at a time that is unknown and unexpected. And the faithful response to that unknown return is a life of preparation and obedience. And that's what Jesus is talking about. As we move into chapter 25, for us, the chapter has changed, the verse numbers have changed, the context hasn't changed. Uh, this is the same hillside, the same disciples, the same flow of thought, and he is continuing with that drive toward helping them understand that they must be ready, that he started all the way back in chapter 24, verse 36. Uh, this time, the picture that he gives them is one of preparation, an action, a preparation action for an unknown event. And as we look through this, the first thing we're going to look at is the picture that we're going to go through because we might or might not be familiar with some of the individual details of it. And in verse 25, as we start off with examining this picture, we're reminded that we're in a parable. Then the kingdom of heaven will be like, and this kingdom of heaven will be like is a familiar way for Jesus to introduce parables. What are parables? Uh, parables are simple brief stories that use common everyday elements or themes to illustrate a spiritual truth. And we read from Matthew chapter 13 at the beginning of the service uh, because we have to remember that parables divide. They divide between those who understand and those who do not. They're going to expose things about the kingdom. They're going to expose things uh, about the coming of the Son of Man that wouldn't otherwise be clear. But the disciples don't understand because they are smarter. 
The disciples don't understand because they have this natural ability to pick up on these things. The disciples don't understand because they're able to sift through uh, this word picture and draw out the allegorical, mystical, spiritual implications. That is not why the disciples have any understanding of these things. They understand because it is given to them. Either Jesus gives them private explanation where that's needed, or the meaning is clear enough within the parable that those who are called by God are given a heart that understands. And that's important for us to remember because sometimes we approach the parables uh, like we have to do all the work to put together all the pieces for things that we might not have otherwise seen. We have to assign meaning to every bit and every piece. And we're not called to do that. As we come together today, we're going to look at a parable that is really a a picture of a wedding. But we never hear about the bride in the wedding, which might sound a little bit odd, especially when we have lots of images in our mind about what a bride means when it comes to spiritual things. But the bride isn't here, and we don't have to spend our time sifting through here trying to figure out where the bride is, who the bride is, or why she's not mentioned. We don't have to assign any spiritual significance to the torches. We don't have to wonder why there were ten virgins and not eight or not seven. We take the elements that are given, the meaning that's applied clearly to them, and we draw out the message that Jesus intended. I love this parable because it's very, very simple. I like simple things. They make life much easier. So that's just a reminder of of the parables in general. They are meant to be understood by those to whom it has been given. And when we talk about a wedding, although when I say a wedding, we have all of these images that pop into our mind. Those are typically kind of significant to our culture. They match up with what we understand a wedding ought to look like. But when we read about this kind of a wedding, we're not really familiar with what this kind of a party would look like. As we go through uh, this illustration, you and I might not have a neat place in our wedding understanding to place ten virgins and their lanterns that they're bringing here. Uh, We need to understand a little bit culturally, at least a very little bit culturally, about what's going on so that we we understand why Jesus uses the elements that he does. Uh, First of all, a wedding, like it is with us, is a major event. But it's not just a major event in the life of the couple or even that individual family. The wedding would have been a major event in the life of the community as a whole. These were high points that the whole community would celebrate. We think of a wedding as being a day. For them, the wedding might last up to a week. We think of a wedding as being at a particular point in time uh, when the bride and the groom say, I do. For them, the wedding was much more in stages. There was a formal contract made that the kids might not even have any say over, but that the parents would enter into. There's a formal betrothal where vows are exchanged, and at that point, the couple is essentially legally married. Although they haven't come together, they don't live together, they haven't known each other physically, they are binding in their marriage contract. That's essentially what we find at the very beginning of Matthew's gospel. Joseph and Mary are engaged, betrothed to one another to be married. And when Mary is found to be with child, Joseph doesn't just say, I'm out of here. He says, I'll seek a divorce, to divorce her quietly. Even though they hadn't come together, even though they hadn't lived under the same roof, the marriage was already at a point where it would require a divorce to separate. We're not familiar with that kind. And between those vows and between the final culmination of the marriage, there's a period of preparation, of waiting. During that time, the groom makes a place ready for his bride. He ensures that he has the livelihood to support her. 
He ensures that there's a home prepared for them. Maybe he builds one, maybe he adds on to the family home that would house several generations of the same family. And finally, at the right time, when everything was done, the groom would come to collect his bride. He would come and he would gather her and they would process through the streets. And the town would come out and they would celebrate. If you have seen Fiddler on the Roof, you have a little bit of an inkling of what this looks like. As Tevye's oldest daughter is married, she and her husband are walking through the streets and everyone is holding candles and there's music out front and you get the sense that this is a community celebration. Everyone is invested in this. The bride has her attendants who have helped her prepare. The groom has his attendants that have helped him prepare. They are the honored friends of the bride and groom, and they lead the procession, and it is an entire community engagement. And so in this context, we see ten virgins who take their lamps. The ten virgins would be the attendants of the bride, helping her prepare for the wedding. Uh, We see lamps, and we've heard lamps in Matthew's gospel before. Uh, Let your light so shine before men. You know, nobody puts a lamp in the middle of a room and then covers over it. You put a light in the middle of the room so that it gives light to the whole house. It's not that kind of a lamp. It's a different word. Uh, This is the same word that John uses when he says uh, that Judas and the Roman cohort came to arrest Jesus with lanterns and torches. It's the same word for torches there. These are lights that would be held up high so that they could give light to everyone around. And then once they're gathered together, once they process through the streets, they would come to the home, the new home of the bride and groom, and then the party would start. Preparations are done The feasting begins, and that lasts essentially as long as the host was able to afford to provide for the group. So with that as the background, now maybe we can understand the people that are involved in the picture that Jesus is painting here. The ten virgins, like I said, are the attendants of the bride. We're not told where they're waiting. We're not told whether they're at the bride's house or whether they've already collected her. We're not told why there are ten, and again, none of those matter. We shouldn't look for some moral quality in the fact that there are virgins there. They would just be the expected type of people who would accompany the bride at this time, especially when we see the division later. It has nothing to do with who they are in that sense. But we get the sense that they're at the time where the preparations are complete and they're waiting for the arrival of the bridegroom. That's the situation. This is the culmination of that time of waiting. And they're waiting for the groom to arrive. And the groom in the parable is not specifically identified. But because we're not just jumping into Matthew 25 on its own, we can understand who the groom is. Jesus has been talking about a delay in his coming, but an anticipation of his coming. And like the groom is going to come at an unknown time, he is going to come at an unknown time and bring his kingdom with him. So we can understand that Jesus is the bridegroom, and that's parallel to what we see in Matthew chapter 9, as the religious leaders ask why Jesus' disciples don't fast like everyone else. Remember Matthew chapter 9? Probably not. Again, it's been a little while. Religious leaders say, why don't your disciples fast like we do? And he says, the guests can't mourn while the bridegroom is with them. This refers to himself as the bridegroom and the idea that the disciples can't mourn, fasting being a sign of mourning or longing. They can't do that when the anticipation, the Messiah, is with them. So if the bridegroom is Christ, those who are waiting would be those who at least externally would claim to be waiting for his return, waiting for the return of Christ. They're looking for the coming of the Son and his coming kingdom. 
But look at verse 2. Five of them, five of those virgins were foolish and five were wise. In the context of the parable, Jesus is going to again, once again, bring us back to the idea of wisdom and foolishness. Now, how do they demonstrate their foolishness? Verse 3, for when the foolish took their lamps, they took no oil with them, but the wise took flasks of oil with their lamps. They all look similar. Again, they're all pictured as virgins. They're all waiting for the groom. Each one carries a lamp, but some of them are unprepared because torches don't last forever. Some of these young women are prepared for a delay by carrying extra oil with them so that they can continue to feed the lamps. And that sets the stage and the scene for us. We're celebrating a marriage, part of which has taken place in the sense of it's formalized. There's vows made. There's preparations made. Uh, The culminating part has not come. We're at the very end of that period of waiting. And as we move on in the parable, now we're going to come to a problem. We're going to come to a particular situation that exposes either the wisdom or the foolishness of the ones who are waiting. Because instead of coming immediately, what we see is that the bridegroom is delayed. Look at verse 5. As the bridegroom was delayed, they all became drowsy and slept. We don't know why the bridegroom is delayed, and we don't have to spend a whole bunch of time or energy looking into why it was delayed. If you were to think of why a bridegroom might be delayed in the cultural context, there might be any number of reasons. Maybe he took longer to get ready. Maybe the roads were difficult to travel. Maybe weather hindered him. There's no cell phones. There's no emails. You can't exactly let people know how the trip is going. You got there as soon as you could get there. But again, we don't have to assign spiritual significance to that. What is significant is the fact that there is a delay that was there that was not immediately planned for. And during that delay, it says they all became drowsy and slept. And I think, again, initially we want to assign something negative to that. If we know that these parables are driving us to be ready, to be alert and awake, the fact that they're asleep must be a negative thing. But again, in the context, it's not. In the context of this parable, those who fall asleep are both the wise and the foolish. They all fall asleep. What distinguishes them is not whether they fall asleep. They do what people do. As the hour gets late, people get sleepy. And so they're not wise or foolish based on whether they get tired or not. They're wise or foolish based on their preparation. But their sleep is interrupted by this loud cry. At midnight, there was a cry. Here is the bridegroom. Come out to meet him. Because although he's delayed, he is certainly coming. He comes at midnight, which would be an, a different, difficult, awkward time maybe to consider a, well, a wedding celebration beginning. But the celebration begins when the bridegroom comes. And it should have a happy announcement. See, if you're waiting for this party, if you are waiting for this feast, if you are waiting for this bridegroom, then whenever he comes, it would be the most glorious announcement that you could think of. If you're prepared, then to hear that the bridegroom has come, whether he comes at 6, at midnight, at 3 a.m., whenever he comes, that would be wonderful news. But we find out very quickly that not everyone is able to celebrate. Because as the bridegroom comes, as the announcement goes out, then the preparations kick into high gear. And right there we begin to see that there's a distinction. There's a division, a distinction in this parable now between the wise and the foolish. Look at verse 7. Then all of those virgins rose and trimmed their lamps. No one's asleep now. There's no mistaking that the bridegroom is there, and all that's left is to prepare to meet him. 
And they all rise and trim, trim their lamps. They all clean the torches and get them ready. As they've been burning and as they've been waiting, they burn down. There's some uh, potentially dead material up there that's already been burned. There's more smoke than fire. Those need to be trimmed. They need to have fresh oil poured on there. And there's a problem with that because not all of them have oil to add. Remember, that was the distinction between the wise and the foolish. The wise are able to prepare to meet the bridegroom. The foolish cannot. They don't have the resources Verse 8, the foolish said to the wise, give us some of your oil, for our lamps are going out. See, as they go and rise up to trim their lamps, as they're jolted awake, and you can almost see that picture, can't you? These young women waiting and waiting, and the eyelids get heavier and heavier, and they drift off to sleep. And as they sleep, the torches burn and then fade and it begins to just smolder, a red glow and more smoke. And then that call, the bridegroom is here, wake up. And everybody jolts awake and they begin these last minute preparations to meet the one who is coming. And those who are prepared, those who have the resources can trim and pour fresh oil on. You can almost see their torches jump back to life. But to those who can't, as they trim away the dead material, there's nothing to replace it. And they flicker and they smoke and they go out. And they ask, give some to us because our lamps are going out. But what's the response? But the wise answered, saying, since there will not be enough for us and for you, go rather to the dealers and buy for yourselves. I said, that's not nice. That's not the Christian answer. We share the oil that we have with other people. Well, this is not a parable about sharing. This is not a parable that is calling for selfishness. This is certainly not a parable that says, uh, seek you first and let everybody else fall to the wayside. Uh, we've been through Matthew's gospel. We know that the greatest in the kingdom will be considered the servant or even the slave of all people. We have to bring that context with us. We're thinking about a very particular thing. If you are in that situation where light is required, if you are in that situation where oil is required to keep the light going, if they gave the oil that they had, then nobody has light. To give what they had would have meant that there wasn't enough for anybody to be supplied. See, they were wise because they brought enough to ensure that when the groom came, they would be prepared. And if they give up what they have, then everyone's torches fail because no one can prepare for you. That's not a possibility. And if they don't have light, if they don't have oil, they're going to go and have to provide for their own because either you're prepared or you're not. But as we come to verse 10, a division takes place while they are going to buy. You bring your own torch, you provide your own oil, and so they have to leave and they have to find something. But now there's a divide, and while they were going to buy, the bridegroom came, and those who were ready went in with him to the marriage feast, and the door was shut because the time for preparation has come and gone. The time to buy oil has come and gone. The time for trimming is gone. The time of waiting and the anticipation and longing for the bridegroom to come, that time is gone. The bridegroom has come, and the bridegroom only comes once. And at that point, the door is shut, and immediately there is a divide in that story. There are those who are in and those who are outside. There are those who are within the walls of the home, celebrating, feasting, and enjoying the wonder and the beauty of that wedding celebration. And there are those who are shut out of that. And there is no mistaking where you're at. Because verse 11, and afterward, the other virgins came also saying, Lord, Lord, open to us. They recognize their place. 
They understand the divide has been made. It is very clear for everyone involved that there are those who are present with the groom and there are those who are outside in the darkness. And the final line of this story gives an urgency and a finality to the whole thing. Lord, Lord, open to us, but look at his answer in verse 12. Truly I say to you, I do not know you. The friends have already gone in. The only people outside are strangers, outsided. The wedding guests are in, and only strangers are on the outside who are not known. And so they're outside, and outside is where they will remain. That's the story. That's the picture that he gives. And once again, it's very straightforward. You understand that a bridegroom would come after a period of waiting and preparation. You understand that as they would process through the streets, that it would be this uh, sense of merriment that would come, anticipating that great wedding feast. And when we finally understand the illustration, uh, then the connections aren't difficult to make. But we do have to make them. We have to see the point to this by making the right connections to what Jesus said. And to do that, we need to understand the parallels that are in this. We need to understand the parallels that Jesus draws here. We've already said that the bridegroom is Christ. That is contextually absolutely clear. The kingdom of heaven will be like this delay. As the bridegroom comes when he is not expected, so too will the king and his kingdom come at a time that is unexpected. And when he comes, there will be judgment. There will be division. And again, if we've been paying attention in Matthew's gospel, we have seen that over and over. When the kingdom comes, there is a great divide that happens. If we were to go back to Matthew 13 and read through those kingdom parables once again, we would see that happen. The kingdom of heaven is like wheat and tares that grow up together. But at the harvest time, there's a division, and the tares are gathered and carried away to destruction. The kingdom of heaven is like a dragnet that catches all kinds of fish, good and bad. But at the time of harvest, when the nets are drawn in, the good are kept and the bad are thrown out and destroyed. And now the kingdom of heaven is like this coming of a bridegroom. And when the kingdom comes, when the king comes in his kingdom with him, there's division. The wise and the ready are brought in, and the wicked and rebellious are cast out. And here's the sobering reality to all of this. That right up until the bridegroom came, the wise and the foolish sure looked an awful lot alike. Ten virgins carrying ten torches. But only in the moment of his coming was it revealed whether they were prepared for his coming or not. And if you read those last couple of verses, how they plead, Lord, Lord, open to us. And the groom's response, truly I say to you, I do not know you, that should sound familiar to us. Because back in Matthew 7, at the very end of the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus makes this sobering statement, Matthew 7, verse 21. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. There's a day coming 
that reveals a reality that right now might be hidden from our eyes. A reality that says the righteous and the wicked grow up together side by side. But at the coming of the Son of Man, there is a revelation of who is prepared and who is not. And that brings us to another element of this that we have to make sure that we understand uh, the permanence. There is a permanent nature to this whole thing. Uh, This judgment that comes is a final judgment. Uh, Even though they come and say, Lord, Lord, let us in, they recognize their folly. At that point, they understand that they failed to prepare. But at that point, it is too late. The door does not open again. I was talking to a high school student this week, uh, who was having a spiritual discussion with one of her friends, which I love it when our high school students do that, and she was talking to him, and according to him and his faith, uh, it is best to respond rightly now, but when you die, you are presented with the reality of all that you've rejected, and you have the opportunity after you die, he said, to change your status. Maybe in finally seeing, you would be able to accept what you could not accept by faith on earth. You need to understand that that is patently untrue. There's no biblical sense where there is a second opportunity after death. In fact, the Bible says just the opposite. In Hebrews chapter 9, verse 27, it is appointed for a man to die once, and after that comes judgment. There's no second chance after death. And understand this, that when the king comes, whatever he, that culmination of that unexpected time is, when the king comes, there is no second opportunity. When he comes, it will be in perfect judgment. And there will be no injustice and there will be no ignorance. No one will be able to stand before the king of kings and say, I simply had no idea. Psalm 19. The heavens are telling the glory of God. Day after day pours forth speech. Night after night reveals knowledge. There is no language. There are no words where his voice is not heard. Every aspect, every part, every one on all of this earth for all time has been exposed to the glory of God. Paul picks up on that theme in Romans 1. Those things that were evident about God were made clear to them. His eternal power, His divine nature, simply by existing in this creation, you and I understand intrinsically that there is a God and that we are not Him. But the universal response of fallen men's hearts is to reject, to suppress what they know and to worship the creation rather than the Creator. No one stands before Him unaware or in ignorance. No Every picture, every call to salvation in the Bible that you have in front of you has a sense of urgency to it. There's a clarity to it. Seek Him while He may be found. Or as the author of Hebrews puts it, today, while it is still called today, don't harden your hearts. And you're called to stand before the king, either in your death or at his coming, justice will be done, and the weight of your sin will fall on someone. Either the weight and the penalty for your sin will fall on Jesus Christ, who bore it for you on the cross, or the weight and the penalty for your sin will rightly rest on you. And so all of this ends with a final precept, a final command. And once again, 
there should be absolutely no surprise as to what it is. Watch, therefore, for you know neither the day nor the hour. Because the Son is coming again, watch. Because with Him comes division, uh, either to blessing or to judgment, watch. Because He is coming when you do not expect it, watch. Be alert. Be ready. What does that mean? It's when we all stand in the parking lot after service and just stare up waiting for Him to come. Well, no, not exactly. The disciples see Jesus ascend to heaven in the cloud as He goes back to the right hand of the Father, and angels tell them, "What? why are you standing? Why are you staring up? He's told you he's coming back. He's going to do exactly what he said. You have work to do. Go do it. Do we go and isolate ourselves, desert hermits separated from the world, just waiting in our own little enclave of holiness, waiting for him to come and get us? No. He said, go and make disciples. Be in the world, not of the world. He said, go and be salt and light. No, we're called to live like the wise women in this story. Anticipate the delay. Prepare for his coming. And that's why he tells the parable that he does next week. It's how these are all connected. While you wait, you are called to do work. Because he has entrusted various things to you. And so, to close, we ask the familiar question, or at least it should be familiar by now, are you ready? Are you prepared for the time when the bridegroom comes? Most of us have been to a wedding. Many of us have even participated in one to one degree or another. Nobody gets ready for the wedding when the bridal march starts to play. By that time, when the back doors of that church swing open, things have already been prepared. The bride has already made herself clean and dressed in white. The hair and the makeup are done. The groom is dressed, hopefully with matching shoes. The hair is done, the vows are written, and all that's left is the time of celebration. There's a time for preparation, and then there's a time when the wedding begins. And in his mercy, Jesus Christ, the bridegroom, has delayed his coming for now. Some of us wish the wait was over, that he would come so that we could be with him. There's a chance that some here, some watching, some listening, might think about his coming with dread because you know that when he comes, he brings perfect judgment with him. Some of you might not ever devote much thinking to the fact that he is coming at all. Today is the day to think about it. And today is the day to answer the question, are you ready? So really, only two applications here. First of all, there's an open door. Right now, the door is open. The invitation to the wedding goes out and continues to go out, and you still have the opportunity to respond. Don't assume that you will get right with God at some point. Don't assume that you're going to have your fun in high school and college, and then you'll get your life sorted out before God. Don't assume that you'll get right with God once your career path is set. Don't assume that you'll get right with God once you get your family in order. Don't assume that you'll get right with God once you fix yourself and get yourself to a certain standard. You can't and you won't. You can't work your way in. You can't earn your way in. You certainly can't buy your way in. 
and you absolutely won't accidentally stumble your way into the door of the kingdom. The gospel message calls you and I today. The gospel commands you and I to respond. Recognize and repent of your sin. Call your failure and your rebellion what God does. Sin that deserves death. Cry out for forgiveness. And unimaginably, He grants it. The King who is coming in all of that wonder and glory is the same King who died so that men and women might be brought into His kingdom. And as far as the East is from the West, He separates the sins of His people. But there's coming a time when the door will close. And you and I don't know when that is. The moment you breathe your last breath, the door is closed. And the decision has been eternally made. There's coming a time when the sun will come again in power and glory, and the door that right now stands open will be closed. Do not wait. Like the virgins in the story, no one can prepare for you. No one can give you of their salvation because it's not their salvation in the first place. The faith of your family, the faith of your father, your mother, your grandfather will not save you. No one is grandfathered into the kingdom. Christ saves a community, a people, a church for himself, but that is an individual act of salvation that you are called to respond to. And while the door stands open, repent and follow the Son. And if you've come to the place where you have repented, where you have experienced that, forgi that forgiveness, then it's time to make an honest evaluation of whether you are living in readiness. Are you ready? Is there any joy to the thought of His coming? Do we ever think of His coming at all? Does the fact that Christ could come at any moment or that we could be called to meet Him at any moment, does that ever change the way that we talk? Does it change the way that we think? Does it change the way that we pray? Does it change the way that we respond to the frustrations and the heartbreaks and the disappointments that surround us? Are we able to put any of that into perspective because we should based on the fact that He is coming again and that we will see Him face to face? And what we have the opportunity to do right now at the end of our service is to examine that. As we come together for communion, to celebrate the Lord's Supper, this is not just a tag-on thing that we do. There is nothing intrinsically holy about bread or cracker and juice. It's a call to remembrance. It's a chance to reflect on whether or not we are ready. It is a chance to repent while He has given us this time to repent. To say, Lord, even though you have called me and saved me, I have fallen so far short in these areas. Forgive me. And then to rejoice in the forgiveness that he offers and to go forward and to do something different through the power of his spirit, through the clarity of his word, to live lives of obedience, to answer that question better as we leave than when we came in. Are we ready? And so right now, as we prepare to take communion, I want to ask you if you are ready. Are you ready to actually take the bread and the cup if there is sin in your life that you have not confessed? Well, we'll, we'll back up a moment. If you don't know this Jesus, if you are still outside of the wedding party, 
Don't confuse the issue by taking communion here. Again, there's nothing magical that happens with the bread and the cup that we take together. Repent and come to faith in Christ. This is open to believers, but only to believers. And if you need to understand what that means, I would love to talk with you about that. If you have come to Christ, and there are sins that you have not laid down, sins that you are wrestling with, you do not have to be perfect, but if there are things that you have not repented of, then I urge you to use this time to repent and to find restoration. If there's a brother or a sister that you need to reconcile with, then before you take communion, you make plans to be restored to that relationship as God calls us to. This is not a somber thing, but this is a serious and sobering thing. This is a wonderful time of rejoicing because it comes with a promise of His coming again. Before we get to that, let us prepare so that we can make sure that we're ready. So I'm going to give you just a moment to do that in the quietness of your own heart. Will you reflect? Will you anticipate the coming of the King? And we'll come together and we'll take the bread in a moment. writes to that church in Corinth, that church that he loved, but that was so plagued with sin and selfishness. And he reminds them of what Christ has done. He says, For I received from the Lord that what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it. And he said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Let's take the bread together. Let's pray. Lord, sin in many ways seems to be this constant plague in our lives. We confess that it's not outside circumstances that cause us to fall, but so often it's our own hearts and our own desires that are made so perfectly clear. Lord, what a comfort to know that we can plead the blood of Christ, the body that was prepared to be crushed and broken for us. Lord, it's a wonder that you would take our place. We rejoice in the fact that you died so that we might live. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.